PM board bombs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast where board setting continues to be fun and enjoyable for the whole family. My name is Blake Briggs, the founder and co-host of EM Board Bombs. You can find my Twitter at BlakeBriggsMD. So for each 15 to 20 minute episode, you gain high yield board knowledge as well as life knowledge. As we like to say, come for the stems, stay for the content. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at EM Board Bombs where we have amassed thousands of loyal followers. As usual, we'll plug our premium podcast, the EM Rapid Bombs. If you enjoy EM Board Bombs but want a TikTok version of our podcast, that's what Rapid Bombs Podcast is for. We just hit over 120 episodes recently for EM Rapid Bombs. Each episode is just two to four minutes where we drop high-yield bombs in question-answer format. They get seared into your memory. You'll never forget it. You'll go to sleep waking up speaking in tongues, EM Board Bombs tongues. <laughs> On average, we drop about four episodes a week. You get a new podcast delivered to your feed almost daily. It's an exclusive feed. You'll still get all of our awesome EM Board Bombs content, but in addition, you get the EM Rapid Bombs. If you join now, of course, you have access to all the prior episodes. Remember, EM Rapid Bombs is for people who would really just want those short bursts of learning. And you can do it while you're driving, working out, walking the dog, or cat, or ferret, or other animals that I've gotten emails from people asking me to include their pets. I haven't heard otters yet. Otters are apparently illegal to own in Alabama, so I think they're illegal in other states, though. We've had a sign-up list range from medical students to PA students to residents to seasoned attendings, even retired surgeons, as one of our listeners is. Remember, you can sign up for EM Rapid Bombs on the website directly, which is emrapidbombs.supercast.tech. And look at the show notes of this podcast as well for a direct link. You can also just go to our main website, the emboardbombs.com website, and there's easy-to-click links that'll take you there. There's also samples of this Rapid Bombs podcast we've turned into a short one-minute sample on the website itself. Check it out if that's something you're interested in. All right, let's dive into the question today, dive into some of our lessons. So Dr. Hussein will not be joining us this week. You haven't heard him talk yet, so I'm sure you gathered that. So you're probably wondering what's the excuse this time. Well, he doesn't really have many excuses, but his personal yacht was under some repairs and could not currently land his personal helicopter on it. So he said he needs to sort that out. He just can't live this type of life right now. For the record, I still have not been invited on either his helicopter or his yacht. Um, we need to talk to him about that. So you have a 19-year-old male arriving to your ED with a friend complaining of a nosebleed. He states he was attempting the toothpick challenge, where apparently you film yourself attempting to fit as many toothpicks in each nostril at a time and then attempt to place them all back in the toothpick container without dropping any. He states he was just one toothpick away from, quote, TikTok gold, quote. But he thinks one of the toothpicks caused a nosebleed. He has normal vitals and is holding pressure to the bridge of his nose with active epistaxis occurring. Which of the following is the best next step? Choice A, TXA application and holding pressure over the nasal ala. Choice B, anterior nasal packing on the affected side. Choice C, oxymetazoline administration 
and holding pressure over the nasal ala. Choice D, have the patient blow their nose and then instruct them to hold pressure over the nasal bridge. The correct answer here is going to be choice C. Choice C, oxymetazoline administration and holding pressure over the nasal ala. So, epistaxis is a common complaint. We've seen it often. This is one of our classic ENT complaints in the ED. It affects over half the people in the United States. And it occurs more frequently in the young and the old, with only about a few, less than 10% of total cases ever trickling their way into the ED for help. See what I did there? If Iltafat were here, he would be just stone-cold laughing at that joke, trickling their way into the ED for help. So most nosebleeds are self-limiting. They require very minimal interventions to control, but some nosebleeds are reminiscent of The Shining, elevator scene, or multiple scenes from John Wick, or even Jaws 1 and 2, but not Jaws 3. Uh, that movie was pretty lame, so we're not going to go there. But insert your gory, bloody movie here, and that's how epistaxis can look. Some of these patients show up, and their shirt is bloodied. It looks like they came from a butcher's shop. So we have a review on our website on epistaxis, which has an awesome algorithm on it. And I want to give a shout out to Dr. Christopher Musselwhite, who is a third-year chief resident at the University of South Alabama Emergency Medicine Program. The Twitter is at South Emergency, by the way. He actively made this document, wrote it himself. He's one of our contributors at EM Board Bombs, and he'll be academic faculty next year. He's an awesome guy, and he wrote a fantastic handout at Epistaxis, so take a look at it online for more details. This podcast will cover the highlights plus some tips and tricks from my own experience. So nosebleeds are either anterior or posterior. They most commonly occur anteriorly, which is like over 90% of the time. The vast majority in your career, you'll see, are anterior nosebleeds. They occur at this area, which is such a fascinating and fun word to say, and you sound so educated when you say it. It's the Kesselbox plexus, but you have to say it aggressively. That's the point. It's German, right? So you always have to sound kind of angry when you say it, and it sounds more intense. So the Kesselbox plexus occurs at the confluence of several arterial branches, and you don't need to know what they are. They, they may start with German names. Who knows? No one cares. Anterior bleeds are typically minor, and they're self-limited, and they occur in this area. So posterior bleeds are scarier. They're due to larger, higher-pressure arteries, and therefore can occur life-threatening bleeding. The most common sources are going to be branches of the sphenopalatine artery, which is not as fun to say as a Kesselbox plexus, and they originate usually off the external carotid artery system. So notice how I said the word carotid there, and that just drives home the point that there's going to be a lot of blood involved. So what makes nosebleeds more likely to be seen in the ED, or what causes them in general? Well, there's a lot of common things that happen. So number one is probably just dryness, right? So that can be seasonal. That could be affecting the mucosa, so that's like central heat in the winter, or using nasal cannula all the time because they have COPD or they're on chronic oxygen for some other reason. And really anything that makes the mucosa friable is another risk. So, you know, infections, right? URIs, viral and bacterial infections. Digital trauma via nose picking. We'll get to that in a minute. And vasoactive substances like good old cocaine and sympathomimetics. Also, radiation therapy is something that I've seen in several patients I've taken care of with epistaxis. Radiation therapy to the face can damage blood vessels and tissue, making them more likely to rupture. They're more friable. Other less common causes, of course, are cancer, active or prior, or this strange condition, which I'm just going to jog your memory from medical school, because unless you're 
a rheumatologist or someone special that deals with these conditions, you're probably never going to see it in the emergency department, which is hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, HHT, previously known by its eponym as Oscar Weber Rendau syndrome. And you're probably like, oh yeah, that one. <laughs> the Oscar Weber Rendau syndrome name. The latter is often diagnosed when patients present with repeated difficult-to-control epistaxis episodes from AV malformations within the mucosa. We're not going to get into how to diagnose Oscar Weber Randall or hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia this podcast. I'll let Iltafat handle that next time. One of the most common risk factors is anticoagulation and antiplatelet medications, followed by bleeding disorders. So patients rarely require reversal from their anticoagulation. Now, what I'm about to say only applies to hematically stable patients, right? Patients that have normal vitals and they're protecting their airway. I want to make sure we're clear on this. In those patients, they've done studies saying, hey, if they are hematically stable and you just got blood coming out of the nose and yeah, it's difficult, difficult to control, but they have an appropriate INR, meaning that it's normal or their therapeutic on warfarin, then you probably shouldn't reverse them. You know, ENT societies agree with this and, and you're probably standing in the ED and holding pressure and helping the patient and just thinking to yourself, like, would it be easiest if I just reverse this patient? Well, you probably shouldn't. So in children, nose picking is the most common cause. And let's be frank here. Adults do it too. How many times have you pulled up to the stoplight when driving and you look to your left or right and someone's going at their nose? So it's really both children and adults. Adults just won't admit it. If there's purulent drainage present with epistaxis in kids, you need to consider the presence of a foreign body though. So let's talk about assessing and managing epistaxis. This really isn't art. However, there are some clearly defined phases to get through here, steps, and that's why some of the answer choices are incorrect. And again, like most things in medicine, in a patient that's hemodynamically stable, you're going to ramp up slowly your treatment, right? You're going to do a stepwise progression of being invasive. If they're hemodynamically unstable, we'll get to that in a minute. It's a little different. So there's multiple valid approaches here. However, one key will be to identify, obviously, the stable versus unstable patient. You got to take appropriate resuscitation steps. So there are two things you need to do while managing epistaxis, step number one, identify who's stable and unstable. Who needs to be intubated earlier on, right? It's not going to be very common, very rare, but you need to think about that. The second thing we have to think about throughout this process is identifying if a posterior bleed is occurring. It's very difficult to do, and often patients simply present with a nosebleed of unknown origin, and the management is very similar for everyone, at least initially. And what happens here is that posterior epistaxis will just continue to bleed despite initial measures, despite all the steps we'll talk about, and that should make you think, okay, everything I'm doing is not working, I could be dealing with a posterior bleed, or the patient seems to be losing a lot more blood, you know, could be a posterior bleed. So airway, breathing, circulation always come first, right? And posterior bleeds may be so significant that the patient may require an airway or even emergent transfusion, so getting two large bore IVs is an important step here if the patient even looks sort of sick, and in that case, addressing the ABCs first, and then dealing with the epistaxis, right? So you also need to consider giving the patient a basin to spit blood in for comfort. You know, spitting the blood will prevent ingestion, also prevents nausea and vomiting associated with ingestion of blood. Always a good thing. Your first step here is going to be topical vasoconstrictor sprays, and that was the correct answer here. And that's like Afrin, which is the brand name for oxymetazoline or oxymetazoline if you're from Sweden, combined with direct pressure. A vasoconstrictor works best if the patient first blows their nose, 
and in this case you'll expel any of the old clots prior to drug application. This is an often forgotten step. I, I really see people mess up in this when the patient comes to the ED and they say, okay, hold pressure for 10 minutes, I'll come back and check on you. Well, they forgot to expel all these old clots because the patient, most likely the reason they're in the ED is that they haven't really held pressure that long. This is by far the biggest rate limiting step I've seen. So educating the patient how to hold their nose properly, administering the vasoconstrictor topically, and then having them hold pressure, and I usually set a timer on a watch or some type of timer locally and say, hey, I'm going to be back on this time here. So that usually helps the patient have a realistic view of, okay, this is how long I need to hold pressure versus at home, they say, I've been holding pressure for an hour. And really, they've been taking the Kleenex on and off, and they may not even be holding pressure in the right spot. You know, so many people hold pressure over the bridge of their nose, which is wrong. So the key here is to have the patient lean forward rather than leaning back, letting the blood flow out the nose rather than down the throat so it doesn't irritate anything. Direct pressure is best applied via pinching the nasal ala together for at least 5-10 minutes. I usually do 10 minutes. And time should always be taken to explain all this to the patient, right, as we just said. So let's say all that works. Usually 9 times out of 10, this does work. This is it. If bleeding ceases, the patient, you know, can be observed like 30 minutes or something. There's no data on that. And send them home. That's it. No antibiotics. Nothing. So if the bleeding persists, though, after direct pressure, you need to consider attempting direct visual examination of the nares. And you can do this with a nasal speculum. You know, we know a lot of EDs don't have this equipment. And the whole point of doing the nasal speculum is identifying a small culprit vessel if it's in the anterior Kesselbach plexus. This is best achieved using that nasal speculum just because of the angle of how you can orient that blade of the speculum with one blade oriented superiorly, the other blade inferiorly. It's great. If you don't have that, you can use an otoscope with a cover on it, but it's just not as good. The vessel, if you see it and it's very focal and it's right there and it's oozing, you can cauterize it with chemical cautery using silver nitrate sticks. You should never apply for more than 10 seconds and you should never use these bilaterally ever. Those are the two big rules here. Never apply for more than 10 seconds, never use bilaterally. And there's this risk of septal perforation. We're not going to get into that. The big thing here is that it only works on a minimally bloody surface. Don't just stick a silver nitrate stick up someone's nose and say, all right, it's in here somewhere. <laughs> it's not going to work. Any active bleeding is going to render this thing useless. What about bovi or electrical cautery? Yeah, I wouldn't do that. I haven't read too much about EM docs doing this. I would save that for the ENT to take care of. So if the bleeding persists after cautery, then really it's time for nasal packing. Or if you're unable to see the vessel, the bleeding vessel, yeah, it's time for packing. So how do you tell the difference between anterior and posterior nasal bleeding? Well, good luck. There's just really no way you can. So the level of bleeding, like the briskness or amount of bleeding, does not help. So what you need to do here is insert packing deep to ensure the potential for any deeper sources of bleeding are identified. And before we get started into what we're going to use here, really important you control your patient's pain and anxiety. These things are painful. So imagine getting swabbed for COVID, but instead of the swab leaving your nose after less than three seconds, it inflates and stays there. <laughs> That's what this is. It's extremely uncomfortable. Also, add the fact that this is inflamed, friable, mucosal bleeding tissue. It's swollen and it's painful. It's awful. And you're inserting something sometimes the size of your pinky or your ring finger. And 
Really the big thing here is you want to achieve anesthesia with cotton swabs soaked with lidocaine with epinephrine. You can also give them IV or IM medications. I wouldn't do, you know, moderate sedation for these people, but it is important to make them feel comfortable. And this is a anxiety producing condition. A lot of the patients don't want to be there. They just want to go home. It's, you know, they're bleeding out of their nose. Family members may be concerned just by looking at them. So, you know, make it comfortable for your patients here. All right, let's talk about several different commercial products here. We're not going to go into all of them. So some are designed to expand when wet. Others require inflation of a balloon. We'll get into that in a second. Both the Rapid Rhino and the Marisol tampons are commonly used, I've seen. If you don't have these supplies, you can use ribbon gauze packed accordion style under the nares. I have never seen ribbon gauze used. I know that's like, I'm a young doctor here. I just, the availability, at least at my shops, of a Rapid Rhino or Marisol or something similar to that is so nice. I can't even imagine trying to accordion-style pack ribbon gauze into the nares. Good luck if you're good at that. I can't imagine personally having the patience of wanting to deal with that uh, as the patient is standing there in front of you. So the Rapid Rhino is much easier to insert than gauze packing. It's encased in this crazy long word CMC mesh, which is called carboxymethylated cellulose, which is prothrombotic. So what you're going to do is you're going to first soak it in sterile water, tap water is fine, for like 30 seconds, and you don't want to use saline, and you don't want to use lubricants. The crazy thing about these, and I've seen them used, is that they inactivate these CMC fibers. Just in case you forgot the name, it's carboxymethylated cellulose fibers. You will not be tested on that, don't worry. So what you're going to do is insert this Rapid Rhino after it's been soaked into the affected nair all the way to the hub, basically, to the end of the Rapid Rhino. You're going to inflate it with air until the pilot cuff is firm. The pilot cuff is similar to an ETT, right, for airway, which is a little cuff to indicate that the bulb is inflated. And you're going to frequently reassess this pilot cuff, and you're going to see if the air is no longer in there, in that pilot cuff, and you need to basically reinflate it a little bit more, tap, and then you're going to tape that cuff to the patient's cheek. So the Marisol tampon is... A little bit different from the Rapid Rhino, and we have pictures of these on our website. You can take a look at, of course. I'm sure there's YouTube videos. Basically, you insert that dry into the patient's nair, and then you squirt some lidocaine with epi or squirt some water on that, and then it rapidly expands uh, when it's wet. We mentioned TXA. We mentioned lidocaine. So the big thing here about TXA, it's amazing how things change in a few years. This drug got all the talk a couple years ago for epistaxis, and it has very limited evidence. But it's been adopted in the ED for refractory cases of epistaxis. One approach is to use a Marisol tampon soaked with about half a gram of the IV formulation of TXA. They've done a meta-analysis of three randomized control trials with like 400 patients, and they found no statistical difference in short-term bleeding cessation, but reported less re-bleeding and greater patient satisfaction when TXA was used. Eh, it's not, it's not that much of a home run. Remember that it can be expensive. At a lot of shops, TXA is very pricey but it can be a worthy agent in refractory cases when you're packing the nose. So nasal packing, going back to our main story here, for anterior bleeding is 95% successful, right? We talked about how rare posterior bleeds are. They're rare. So if the bleeding continues after anterior packing is done, then you need to automatically consider two things. One, they have bilateral bleeding and you didn't get the other side yet. Or two, they have posterior bleeding. So what you need to do is you, you know, pack one side of the nair, anterior packing, fails, okay, pack the other side, fails, okay, well, if bilateral packing does not stop the bleeding, then this is a posterior bleed until proven otherwise. 
Besides using longer length balloon catheters, there's really not much more you can do. You're just kind of done. So this should trigger an automatic ENT consult and an automatic admission to monitor the bleeding with possible future procedures. If you're in a rural shop and you're alone, you could attempt using a 10 to 14 French Foley catheter. Eh, good luck. Inserting through the nose along the pharynx until it is visible in the posterior pharynx. Then you inflate and retract up against the posterior nasopharynx. Sounds great, right? Well, good luck with that. Really coordinate your care with the ENT, uh, either local or if you have to transfer, stabilize the patient. You know, by this point, you should have gotten labs. They should have IVs. They should be prepared for an admission. You should have discussed possibility of reversing them if they're hemodynamically unstable, right, at this point, etc. So patients that you control, they're bleeding with anterior packing, well, you're going to send them home like we just said, and you're going to discuss possible antibiotic therapy. So let's jump topics here as we wrap this up and talk about when you're discharging a patient, do they need antibiotics? This gets some attention here. And historically, systemic antibiotics are given as a prophylaxis against infectious complications from nasal packing. Harkens back to the whole, you know, toxic shock syndrome, scary staph infection, you know, remember that? However, evidence is really bad. <laughs> the evidence is poor that systemic antibiotics provide any benefit whatsoever, especially if the packing is removed after 24 to 48 hours, and the patient is not immunocompromised. So the decision to use prophylactic antibiotics should be made on a case-by-case -case basis, and hopefully with input from your local ENT. I would honestly just talk to your ENT about it and let them ride this with you if you both want to take that risk together. The worst thing you can do is just ignore everything, discharge the patient, have them follow up with the ENT office, and the ENT office says, wait, why don't you put them in antibiotics? So it's always good to coordinate your care with other physicians. And this isn't really one of those like slam dunk, wow, this is stupid, we're giving antibiotics. We're not really sure. There's just no evidence to support it really right now. Packing should never remain in place for greater than 48 hours. High risk of infection here. So remember that. All right, that is all I got. So thank you for listening to EM Borbombs as usual. Again, if you enjoy EM Borbombs but want a rapid TikTok version of our podcast, less stupid jokes from me, less dad jokes from Iltafat, well, that's what our Rapid Bombs podcast is for. We have over 120 episodes right now. We're amassing four episodes a week. They're about four to five minutes long. They're awesome. They give high-yield info, not just for boards, but just general drip learning medical facts that you need to know as an emergency medicine provider. So remember, you can sign up at emborebombs.com for this. You can also go to emrapidbombs.supercast.tech. Again, we have a sample of one of our episodes there. Listen to it, see what you like, scope it out. Take a look if there's a group sign up you want to do, get some of your buddies involved. Feel free to let us know, email us. We are very fast at responding, but thank you for listening. Find me on Twitter at BlakeBriggsMD. And thanks again to Dr. Christopher Musselwhite, chief resident, PGY3, who wrote this epistaxis script and handout, which is online at our website at emporebombs.com. Stay safe out there. We'll see you next time.